Hello and welcome to episode 101 of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Marco and regular listeners will expect will be expecting another voice there saying I'm Tarek, but uh, Tarek is not for the first time away on holiday as I have to record this intro and outro to the podcast. It's funny how it's always him that gets to go away on holiday when, and I'm left to do this. But what that does give me the opportunity to do and not embarrass him by doing so is talk about uh, briefly Tarek's new book, which is just out. It's called Follow Me to the Edge, and it's a really dark crime novel set in his fictional town of Cooper, Nebraska. Um, His first book, Welcome to Cooper, was a huge hit. Um, It was on the Amazon bestseller lists. Um, And this one is uh, set in the same universe, I guess, but it's a prequel to that previous book. I would highly recommend going and checking it out. Um, because it's if you like your crime novels as a sort of slow burn dark with loads of character and not many nice people then uh, they are great books to pick up so uh, his absence allows me to plug that without embarrassing him and I hope he doesn't mind that I've done that but back to the podcast uh, as I say this is episode 101 Last week was our special 100th episode, which was an interview with Ian Rankin, uh, which you can not only listen to, but also watch on YouTube. We filmed that in uh, our uh, producer Tim's studio. So that was a really great opportunity for us to speak to a writer of Ian's calibre. And we uh, really enjoyed the episode. And it's been great getting some good feedback on that as well. So if you haven't checked that out, please do so. Please also check out the previous guests that we've had in the other 99 episodes there's lots of authors screenwriters comic writers video game writers journalists comedians so all giving their hints and tips and hearing how they got into the industry so um, definitely worth checking those out if you haven't already and before i introduce this week's guest uh, i just wanted to also remind you that we have a competition running uh, to coincide with our 100th episode we're giving away um to three winners, uh, some books from our previous guests, along with a signed copy of Ian Rankin and William McIlvany's The Dark Remains, and also a signed page one notebook that's signed by Ian Rankin, which is the writer's notebook that that we've uh, designed and and sell on our website. Uh, And a further two people will win another signed page one notebook. So all of the rules about how you enter that can be found on our social media on the post talking about the competition so uh, please just go and check one of those out and enter uh, and you'll have a chance to win a great prize but on to this week's episode we have of course got another great guest for you Uh, this week we had the great opportunity to chat with georgia pritchett who is a brilliant screenwriter Uh, She started out, as she tells us, in radio and then moved on to uh, comedy sketch shows such as Spitting Image, Smith & Jones, started writing for Joe Brand and then became one of Armando Iannucci's uh, most trusted screenwriters, I suppose, uh, working on The Thick of It first and then uh, in a big way on Veep. And most recently, she's been working on the brilliant Succession, which, you know, is obviously one of the best shows on TV at the moment. And just having someone that's worked on all of these great shows is incredible. On top of that, she just 
was the showrunner on the Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd show on Apple TV called The Shrink Next Door, and we chat to her about that and what that was like as an experience, and also chat to her about her upcoming projects as well, uh, which she's working on, along with, of course, writing the next season of Succession. So it's a really great episode, and Georgia was full of great hints and tips, and it was a lot of fun to record it. So uh, I'll get straight into the episode after a quick advert for our writer's notebook, and then I'll be back very briefly at the end just to let you know about next week's guest. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Because I know that in your family, there's a, there's a history of, of writing there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm very lucky in that way, in that it's, uh, I come from a family where it's considered a, a proper job because <laughs> I know lots of people don't <laughs> um but yes I think that is literally the probably the only thing I've never been confused about is that I want to be a writer and um even before I could write I would um sort of speak stories into a tape recorder um they were pretty much all stories about budgies who'd fallen out of their nest and couldn't find their way home it's it's a niche genre um, <laughs> and you know it hasn't taken off in the way I'd hoped but uh, one day it will be recognized um so yeah and then I remember I got a typewriter when I was about 10 and I immediately wrote a kind of no holds barred uh coruscating biography of my hamster um who very pet focused your early writing very pet focused yes and and, and indeed still is very <laughs> focused. 
Um, yeah, my hamster, like all my pets, devoted an enormous amount of time and energy in, into trying to get away from me. And um, he was the sort of Douglas Bader of the rodent world, and had, uh, basically done these audacious escapes. Um, so I wrote about him. Um, and yeah, so so thankfully, I did know that's what I wanted to do. And Thankfully, I had no other skills, so <laughs> I didn't have another option really. So it it was uh, it wasn't so much a choice as just the one thing that I could have a go at. <laughs> I've been I've been reading your book uh, lately, which um, I've just about finished, and I'm absolutely loving. And the I got the impression that your granddad in particular was quite a kind of big inspiration to you. And the bit I quite like the bit when you talk about how when you wrote these short stories he would write his and then you would kind of pass each other your work and yes. then you would you would tell him what, what you thought of it and he would tell you what, what you thought of yours yes. that, is that quite a big it must be quite a nice big moment to have yeah I think it was yes he he was a proper writer and and wrote some short stories and novels and literary criticism and I think um he was I think he was an influence in that I saw when I went to his house, I saw that writing kind of was such a solace and such a kind of escape and brought him such kind of peace and contentment and fulfilment. Um, and he he wrote every single day. And I definitely had that same sort of compelling need to write every day. And it's definitely something I, I that's a solace to me as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, I realised pretty quickly I wasn't, I wouldn't, I couldn't be a writer like him. I can't really write prose. I don't know enough adjectives and I don't <laughs> like describing things at all. I'm sort of, uh, yeah, I just feel I don't know what that looked like. It's not, it's too much of a responsibility to say. Um, so, yeah, it was um yeah so I knew I couldn't do that and I also my dad was a journalist and I realized well I can't do that because I don't care about facts although these days hey um, <laughs> um so yeah I was a bit at a loss kind of having this drive to write but kind of thinking I don't know what to do and so when I um hit upon the thought of doing scripts um and just sort of focusing on dialogue that was a um a, a very happy day for me when I thought yeah that I'm, I love dialogue and I love um, watching tv and listening to radio and you know that's something I can really embrace and ex you know be excited about exploring. And, and was it um, a step into radio was that your first sort of yeah, so, into the world of writing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it's um, it's still a great place to start. But, um, you know, back when I started, there were a couple of shows that you could just submit material to anyone could. And um, you could, there was one in particular called Weekending, which was kind of sketches about the week's news where anyone could turn up at the BBC and, and there'd be like an hour long meeting with the producer where they'd say, which kind of news items they'd be covering and then you kind of all rushed home and wrote sketches and typed them up and brought them in the next day and and a lot of the people there were just sort of 
people who'd come in to keep warm and have a biscuit. <laughs> and then <laughs> there were other people there who, who like me, were sort of trying to um, learn their craft. And, yeah, it was a great, great way to start. Fantastic. Very sort of democratic mm-hmm. um, process where they just picked what they thought were the best things they'd got that week. Um, yeah, it was really, it was a really good way to learn. Is there anything be... like that now? Any sort of, it seems much harder. Yeah, that's a really good question. I, as I say, I feel like radio still does give people a, a good start. And I suppose these days with, you know, YouTube and TikTok and yeah. everything online, you can sort of write and film or record your own stuff so easily and upload it that that's maybe the kind of closest equivalent that there is. I suppose the only difference there would be that you're sort of launching it into an abyss (laughs) and and hoping it gets noticed by someone as opposed to a, a sort of radio show when there were a few radio stations and stuff like that that yeah, I think, yeah, definitely the sort of plus point was that you knew that at 11 o'clock on a Friday night that that show was going to go out, whether it had a joke of yours in it or yeah. not. So you could yeah. sort of sit with your stopwatch by the radio because depending on how much material you got in, that was uh, how much money you'd have. So you'd find <laughs> out on a Friday if you could afford to eat. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, But, I, yeah, I suppose... You know, you were limited to what the BBC thought yeah. was a, a sort of good version of a satirical s- sketch, whereas there's more freedom, you know, if you're just uploading stuff. But as you say, there's there's a gazillion things being uploaded every second. So it is, a, it is um, uh, kind of just having taking that leap of faith that someone will yeah. see it. And I think, I mean, I'd imagine having that, you know, a tight 24-hour window to say, right, here's what we're going to talk about tomorrow, get your jokes in by X PM mm. the next day. I mean, that must have been a really good learning experience into how to turn around stuff quickly. Yeah, it was. It really was. And of, and of course, you know, you learn as much when you don't get stuff in. You learn, mm. you know, when you hear what they did choose instead of yours, that's incredibly mm. helpful and informative. You think, oh, I see they went for... You can you can sort of work out why they chose something else over yours, and then you can sort of adjust what you submit the following week. So yeah, so it's a really sort of intensive kind of learning curve um, because it's you know it's do or die basically. It's it's um, yeah you you can't it's hit or miss. You can't um, nearly get something in. It's uh, <laughs> so it's pretty important that you learn the lessons each week if you don't get something yeah. in yeah and and from there am i right in saying that you moved into tv did you move to spitting image yeah that's right so i guess you know having written for for one kind of topical sketch show then other sketch shows um sort of invited me on so as you say spitting image and smith and jones and rory bremner and joe brand and and shows like that so then sort of opening out from strictly sort of news related sketches to more kind of general related sketches mm-hmm. um so that yeah that was really you know really great and you know and also writing for Lenny Henry I think writing for sketch shows and stand-ups is such a good 
um, way of learning because it's so character based and, it, and it's so about sort of inhabiting yeah. the personality of that stand up or, or or those kind of characters on the sketch show that it's really good um, training for when you're writing narrative um, because you've sort of learned all those skills already. And it's, and it's also something that, sorry, uh, sorry, Tarek, no, I was just going to say, I, writing for comedians isn't something that people get credit for, really, is it? The comedian is always the one that is, uh, they're so funny, and it, it's sort of attributed, everything is attributed to that person. It's sort of the the unsung hero of, of, yeah. of a writer or writing team behind them sometimes. Yeah, well. I guess, yeah, that's never really bothered me, I think. um I sort of love the anonymity of it and I love um, kind of having to develop that sort of chameleon-like skill of one minute you're Lenny Henry and the next minute you're Ronnie Corbett and the next minute you're Joe Brand. I think that's... And, you know, when they have their own TV shows, I think everyone knows they have writers and uh, I'd much rather be... Uh, hiding in the background than, than on screen, so I've always been very happy with that setup. And you, you have a bit in, in in your book when you talk about um, getting a phone call from Ronnie Ronnie Corbett and yeah. he asked you to write some jokes for him, and you met him in a layby and handed over an envelope of jokes for an envelope of cash. And is that is that how most of them pay for the jokes? Is that is that a bit unusual? Very shady. Yes, yeah, I, I felt like. So gangster. That's probably the closest I'll ever I imagine him counting the jokes gangster. before he hands over, over the money to make sure there's enough. Food. Yeah. I think because he, at that time, although he did um, then go back to TV, but when, when he was just kind of touring and stuff, you know, it wasn't being paid for by a show or a production. So, yeah, he, he, he was paying himself. So, yeah, we would, we'd swap envelopes. And, um, yeah, he was great. I learned a lot from him. He was a really incredible performer. And and when you were sort of breaking through doing all of this work, um, it was a time when there weren't many women mm-hmm. writers getting the opportunity at that point. I mean, yeah. how did that feel? Was that intimidating or was it easy? How, how did that feel for you? Yeah, it wasn't. It definitely wasn't easy. Uh, I think being the only woman always and also the only person who hadn't gone to Oxford or Cambridge mm-hmm. um was was hard um and I think I say in the book I didn't have to worry about imposter syndrome because I was an imposter and was treated <laughs> like that so uh yeah it was tough but you know on the other hand it's all I knew so and I love all the men that I've worked with that you know that that's great and uh, I just kind of thought oh this you know this will change soon but of course it was 25 years before I ever got to sit in a writer's room with another woman and um and that indeed was in America so yeah we've still got a way to go yeah um but yeah, I mean, it's tough. It's tough being uh, outnumbered. Um, but yeah, I think things are slowly changing. Because it seems like it was, it was a difficult time for both for for women who are both performing and writing. You know, in the whole industry, really. There's a bit about Joe Brand, and mm. I didn't. I mean, again, obviously, I didn't realize until recently that as 
Marco said that people wrote the jokes for the people who see them on stage and it's a bit about Joe Brand and the fact that she kind of would always start off with a joke. She wanted a joke at the start of her set about her weight because she mm. thought it was better to preempt that rather than have someone yeah. shout something from her from the audience. And it just, I just got this impression that it was a pretty miserable time at, at times for, for women. Both I think in front it and, was really you know, tough. I mean, she wrote a huge amount of her, particularly her stand-up. Um, but yeah, I think it was really tough to be a performer or a writer then. I think what's been good recently is that female writer performers have um, done really well. And I think the the sort of sad thing is that's come from a kind of place of discrimination in that people like Michaela Cole or Phoebe Waller-Bridge or Sharon Horgan have kind of thought, hang on a minute, I'm not really getting very interesting roles. I'll write one myself. Um, mm. But the good news is when they do and when it's put on TV, it's incredible. And, uh, you know, and it and it just makes you think, oh, we we you know we have to hear from more diverse voices because it's just yeah. so fantastic and so enriching to everyone, not just to to women. But, you know, what incredible shows those people have mm. written and and how brilliant that we've all been able to see them. But it's, it's, it's that kind of line that, you know, women can't be as funny as men. And I remember that's, I remember folks saying that line when I was younger, going to see stand-ups mm. and stuff. And that seems like very, still a very modern view. But I mean, I think you're right. It definitely is going away as we see these mm. kind of women-fronted shows making an mm. impact. But it's amazing how, how until fairly recently, it didn't seem like there was that much of a, there's still a lot of kind of hang-ups or, or yeah, old-fashioned yeah. thinking about it all. Definitely, for sure. Yeah, it's so interesting. And so interesting as well that, um, I mean, this is this is like a much longer conversation, but you know, I think the states have kind of proved themselves to be pretty sexist in the last <laughs> five years or so. Um, but they just don't have those sort of hang-ups. And you know, right from the beginning of sitcoms, they've had women in the leads like Lucille Ball and Mary Tyler Moore yeah. and Rhoda and Roseanne and Ellen and countless others. And that just isn't something we've done. And and I don't entirely understand the sort of psychology of that, but it's just comedy has been such a sort of um, male-dominated arena right from the beginning. And the women have always been the kind of sensible girlfriends or wives providing yeah. the set-up lines while the men did the punch lines. And, um, yeah, it's amazing how long that's taken to... Begin to change. It's yeah. It, it, it's it's that thing about you know, uh, as a kid, what can you see people yeah. doing? Can you aspire yeah. to be that person? I suppose it's yeah. the same, uh, you know, with with race in America and things like that. Uh, yeah. Th- th- this th- these opportunities are opening out more now because they're being given more opportunities, and then yeah. the system is almost surprised that things like that work. In a stream yeah. <laughs> because the system's so biased the other way, but yeah, um, yeah, exactly. it's, it's it's interesting. But I, I was going to ask you then um, went to or at, at some stage after that you you went to work with uh, Armando Iannucci. You, you did yeah. the thick of it, and then obviously on to Veep. And mm-hmm. um, what was it like working on those shows, which are so legendary as as comedy yeah. shows? Yeah, I mean, he's amazing, isn't he? Um, I was terrified when he, I mean, I was thrilled when he asked me to work on the thick of it, but I was also terrified. And um, 
Yeah, I remember on the first day I turned up on set to write on the thick of it and he sort of said, right, we're doing this inquiry episode and the the vibe I'm going for is sort of um, less Chilcott, more Leveson. And I just thought, I have no idea. What you're <laughs> and I was just so panic stricken. And I just, I thought Chilcott was a lovely spa. Um, and there was, we used to film the thick of it in this horrible uh, um, sort of abandoned office building that was freezing and in the middle of nowhere. And it had no Wi Fi. So I couldn't even Google what the <laughs> hell is Chilcott. <laughs> So I did sort of have one of those moments where I kind of thought, shall I just run and keep running and never come back? But I kind of had to calm myself down and say, look, I understand the word inquiry. Um, so there's going to be an inquiry. And I know that these characters will, that will be, you know, very uh, concerning for them. And I also know that they're very likely to lie and, you know, I think often when you write characters lying is when you kind of get to their truth. So I just sort of thought, well, I'll just kind of write what I know and, and I feel terrified. I can channel that into, <laughs> into the scenes I write. And uh, so, yeah, it worked out. It worked out OK. But, um, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty scary first day being thrown in the deep end. And, and I mean, that's uh, on the process side of things. For How, how does... You know how how does an, how did an episode of the thick of it come together in terms of the writers? Was there, you know, was there a sort of scenario you're given and then you have to fill in the blanks, as it were? Yeah, exactly. We'd we'd sort of come up with scenarios, and Armando would often sort of have a very um, clear idea of what he wanted. And then, what's so lovely is it is a sort of genuinely collaborative process, and um, so Armando sort of talks in terms of um, making gravy, the metaphor of making gravy, because you all add to each other's scripts and you all kind of pass it around. So he might say, you know, we need an alternative for this line and you'll write kind of four suggestions and then the next writer will write another four or five and then you'll all go out and in the end you'll have kind of 50 or 60 suggestions for one line. And the good thing about that is, is you get to a place you would never have got to on your own because you are inspired by other people's suggestions who've been inspired by other people's suggestions. So his sort of metaphor is, you know, when you're making a gravy, you may throw in a carrot or an onion. And then at the end, you might not see your carrot or onion, but it, you know, it's, it's an integral it's part of the gravy. the flavour. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's kind of his thing of saying, if, when you see the show go out, that joke is not the one you'd written. Like, don't worry, because your joke sort of contributed towards the final joke. And and I think we all definitely felt that. And, um, it you know, again, that was another really good learning experience. And um, I, I say in my book that I, um, by a sheer fluke, thought of an incredibly funny joke, which sadly I can't remember <laughs> what it was. But trust me, um, 12 years ago, I thought of a really good joke. And um, <laughs> and I said it and he said, uh, no, that's not right. That's too funny. And, uh, <laughs> and I remember thinking, hmm, is that possible in comedy? <laughs> um, but he sort of explained, and he was absolutely right, that there was this moment where Roger Allen's 
character, uh, Peter Mannion, um, sort of got caught by the press and he was saying he wouldn't, he'd be too panic-stricken to come up with a joke. He'd It would be much funnier if he just sort of makes word-shaped noise and just says as many words as he can without actually making any sense and so we did that and it was it was much much funnier and again that was like a really good lesson because you think so tempting when you think of a good joke to just bung it in but if it doesn't sort of serve the character or the story then you know you really should cut it out it's it's um important to be ruthless and yeah so that was a good a good lesson and then how did the writer's room in Veep compare to that? Because am I right in saying that the Veep writer's room, did you move to America kind of midway through? So did that did yeah, shift exactly. the kind of British feel to an American feel? Yeah, it was really interesting. So the first four seasons of Veep were Armando and, and his sort of British writers, and we wrote it in London and it was filmed in Baltimore. And then uh, after four seasons, he'd, he'd been away so much he needed to come home. And... Uh, so he handed over to this American showrunner called Dave Mandel, um, who'd kind of come from Seinfeld and stuff. And then Dave Mandel set up uh, a sort of proper American writer's room in L.A. And the whole production was then written in L.A. and filmed in L.A. They had to sort of drive our Oval Office across the country very slowly <laughs> and put it in L.A. And um so that was amazing to be in a proper kind of American writer's room with like 12 of my heroes who'd written Seinfeld and The Simpsons and Friends and everything I'd ever loved. Um, so, yeah, that was another kind of uh, terrifying but exhilarating experience. Is, is the process different in an American writer's room then? I think it is, and a lot of that's financial. You know, they've got the money, they've got a such huge audience uh, potential, and they've got the money to employ a lot of writers to come in every day for a long time, and we don't have that luxury over here. But, um, yeah, so a big writer's room, and, um, you know, just showrunners have different... Um, kind of processes and I think Armando's someone who gets a script out quite quickly and then will sort of rewrite and rewrite and rewrite whereas Dave Mandel was much more lots and lots of storylines and keep rewriting the storyline and when that's absolutely exactly as he wants it then you kind of do a draft and you don't do that many drafts so it was it's sort of the opposite but obviously both work it's just whatever works for the showrunner um and and is there because obviously a writer gets credited one of the writers will tend to get credited with an episode um but uh, presumably the whole writer's room is is contributing to that particular yeah episode. so so generally you're sort of involved in the in the outlining of of each episode and then as you say one person will get given that episode to write and they'll write the script and they'll write a few drafts or or if you're with Armando dozens of drafts um and then everyone will sort of as they say punch it up or or add alternative jokes um so it's good you feel I think the good thing about that is you feel 
kind of emotionally invested in every episode and that there isn't that sort of feeling of oh I'll save that good joke for my episode because everyone yeah. is involved in every episode and you're you get to kind of uh other people make you look good with their contributions and you get to kind of um put your ideas and jokes into their script so it's yeah it's very when it's working it's a brilliant way to work and 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 from then you've you've been working on succession um i know you're working on season four right now and you're kind of breaking that down but i, I did wonder how how did that come around how did the, how did the show come around because i know most of the writers are british despite it being an incredibly american feeling show like i didn't realize until after the first season that it was written by folk based in the uk i, I assumed it was american um and 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 i kind of wondered why that was and and, and how that came about yeah, it's, it's, that's a good question. I think, I mean, yes, no, everyone was very surprised that the first four seasons of Beep were completely British writers. Mm-hmm. And then similarly, Succession, the sort of core group that started Succession were basically a group of British comedy writers, kind of shambolic, scruffy <laughs> comedy writers, and I think there was some concern from some quarters. Could this sort of mumbling bunch of socially <laughs> awkward people um, pull off a sort of glossy high-end American drama? And, um, and you know, in some ways, no, we couldn't <laughs> because um, we had. They had to get lots of um, experts, and in particular, they had to get a. A rich consultant because none of us knew what it was like to be rich um so I remember in season one um I wrote an episode about the Thanksgiving that the family have and I remember the rich consultant really took me to task because I think at one minute I had one moment I had Marsha saying you know lunch is ready or it's turkey or something they're like she would never stoop so low as to <laughs> even know where the kitchen was or and then oh yeah and I um I had you know I had a thing saying the maids served the food you know or women wearing maids uniforms served mm. the food and they were like where on earth did you get the idea that there would be maids in maids outfits and I was like I mean, it's got to be either porn or racist Tom and Jerry episode. <laughs> I don't know. But apparently rich people don't have maids. They have very handsome young men in chinos and polo T-shirts serving. <laughs> um, and then they were like, you know, rich people don't wear coats because they go from their car to their jet to their building and they don't, their shoes only ever walk on carpet. They never walk on ground. And there's a real learning curve. Uh, yes. um, fascinating yeah yeah and and succession obviously yeah it's it's a drama but there's obviously a lot of um, comedy in there and you know it's about a bunch of terrible people uh, ultimately but you you know as as a viewer you you sympathize I don't know if sympathize is the right word you empathize with with the different characters at certain Mm -hmm. times is there any danger of creating too much empathy for for these sorts of characters? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I mean, uh, you know, at first I sort of, when Jesse mentioned it to me, I thought, I don't know if I want to write for a bunch of 
horrible white men who are destroying democracy in the world. And then I thought, oh, well, you know, it'd be interesting. And then, and in fact, it has been really interesting because you have to dig so deep and and sort of tr- and really try to create these fully rounded human beings who have these who have sort of damage and flaws and mm-hmm. um and that's been very um exciting to do that but i agree there i think there are times where i kind of perhaps if i don't if jesse doesn't keep me in check i go a bit frenzy and and have them sort of learning from their mistakes and becoming yeah. nicer people. And Jesse has to keep saying, no, that's no good. You can't decide Roman's sweet, really. He's a horrible person. <laughs> um, he's not going to change. Um, so, yeah, I think it is sort of finding that line of of sort of showing, look, these people are wildly privileged, but they're also incredibly damaged and they've suffered sort of, emotional neglect and emotional abuse and they're they're sort of they've got all these problems that they'll never really be able to address or overcome so it's just kind of trying to depict that in sort of accurately without kind of doing any wish fulfillments in the writing and and sort of making them suddenly change and become mother Teresa or something (laughs) is it a show that could have been made that or that couldn't be made until kind of now you know because it feels like a kind of show where you've got you know as Marco says these kind of horrible people but you still kind of root for them almost Mm -hmm. in a way and it feels like a kind of much more complicated relationship the viewer has with the character than you know Mm -hmm. I can imagine that kind of show 10-20 years ago would be much more straightforward and they're horrible people and maybe they're being investigated and it'd be more of a kind of Will they get caught? You'd probably have prison. a nice guy character. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, whereas, whereas yeah. it's I much suppose, more, yeah. Yeah, I suppose they had like Sopranos, didn't they, all that time ago? And that was like a yeah, really I suppose that's true. Yeah. sort of groundbreaking, oh, these people are human beings with families. And in a way, it's like that. But I think perhaps we are sort of as a world perhaps a bit more knowledgeable about the people who are controlling the world and the media and the, and mm-hmm. the messages that get out there. And so, so perhaps you're right that we did need to get to a place where people are beginning to be aware of how much they are being manipulated and how much the media is being manipulated and, and what is the truth and whose version of the truth are we getting and that yeah. kind of thing. And when you obviously it is it is a drama, and is the does that affect the the ability in terms of how far you can push? You know, Veep had good great stories, but comedy was at the forefront of Veep. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, with Succession, I would say the dramas at least level with with the comedy in terms of what the story is trying to tell does that affect the the writing process does it change for example how much the writers are having to change stuff nearer the shooting scene or and things like that yeah um that's interesting i think what um the difference is and, and why in a way it's been good having so many comedy writers on it is that often well, this is a sweeping generalisation, but sometimes in dramas, 
it's so plot driven and you know I, I suppose at an extreme level something like 24 is just mm-hmm. all plot isn't it yeah yeah so to sort of tackle something where actually you strip out a lot of plot and it's really all about the kind of much more about the dialogue and the relationships of the characters which is more kind of where comedy tends to sit mm. um that I think it's sort of um found a kind of quite a happy sort of marriage between those two elements of it and yeah with Veep well it, I was about to say it was much more sort of extreme but then of course reality <laughs> overtook <laughs> <Yeah>. us and, <laughs> Um, I mean, it's not the worst thing Trump did, but he did put an end to Veep because, yeah. you know, we... You couldn't do that show anymore, could you? Yeah, we, we really couldn't. And we, you know, our fictional president was sort of a horrible, ruthless, lying um, monster. But she had a sense of shame and we kind of punished her when she did bad things. And suddenly that seemed incredibly twee and old fashioned just overnight. <laughs> so it's like, oh, we can't do that anymore. So we had to finish that there. But um, I did enjoy, by the way, um, people post it online every so often, don't they? That Scottish newspaper report of the election where it says where it said Scottish golf club owner <laughs> yeah, yeah. or something. <laughs> so good. Um and I also wanted to ask about Shirt Next Door, which is your kind of latest show and that's your own show. You're the showrunner, the creator, you know, and you've it's been adapted. It's a true story based on the podcast. And for those that haven't watched it, it's Will Ferrell is a is a client of Paul Rudd, who's a psychiatrist and it's about their I, I mean we, I finished watching it not too long ago and um, it's, it's a fantastic show and I thought Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd are brilliant. It's Paul Rudd especially, they both are very, very different than anything I've seen them in before. You know, mm. it, it was really refreshing to see them playing these parts yeah. and I was chatting with my, my wife about it as we were watching it and I said, I don't know if this is a show that I could say I'm enjoying because it was so stressful and the anxiety was just building yeah. every episode and it kind of gets, the, the two of them have this relationship and it goes to a point where you think if this wasn't a true story, you say this has just gone too far. It's yeah. nonsense. But it's just it's such a fantastic story, and it's so. Yeah. I mean, how did that come about, and and what what was it like being a showrunner? Yeah, I mean that that was great. I love doing that, and it is an incredible story. I did actually have to sort of tone it down to make it vaguely <laughs> believable. So um, yeah, well, so it was this fantastic podcast called The Shrink Next Door, and and funnily enough, both Will Ferrell heard it and was trying to get the rights to play Marty, the patient, at the same time as um, Paul Rudd had heard it and was trying to get the rights and wanted to play the psychiatrist, Ike. So then they kind of joined forces and and bought the rights. And then um, they asked people to sort of pitch for it. And I'd been a big fan of the podcast and it felt like a sort of natural progression because as, as you've spotted, I've sort of, carved out this niche of writing for pretty appalling characters um and but you know but in very specific worlds like the world of politics or the worlds of business which are kind of cutthroat and ruthless and I thought well this is an interesting opportunity to write about these two people and it's just about their relationship there's no kind of politics or business Mm. to, to to sort of distract or um 
to hide behind. It's all just about feelings. And um, and I, I think a lot of people sort of, I understand, approached it as a kind of like a goody baddie story or sort of villain victim and and my approach perhaps because I'm now learned to show compassion to my horrible characters um <laughs> was you know look this is almost like a love story this is a relationship that lasted 27 years and I think it's too simple and reductive to say well Marty was a fool or a gullible idiot and Ike was a evil manipulator you know let's just try not to blame or judge either man and just try and work out how this happened and also acknowledge that it could actually happen to any of us. We've all been in unhealthy relationships, whether it's with family or friends or romantic ones, and it's always really hard to spot when something that's been good changes into something not good. And so I think that's sort of what appealed to me and I think as you say Will and Paul and Catherine Hahn are just incredible in it and and my approach was you know they'll think people will think this is a comedy but I'm going to sort of subvert expectations yeah. and it's actually really a tragedy and, and yeah. what's been so interesting for me is that sort of half the people have watched it and be like oh this isn't what I was expecting and then the other half have been like Hmm, this isn't what I was expecting. <laughs> so I don't know how clever it is to subvert expectations, but I did think their performances were absolutely brilliant and heartbreaking. And it, yeah, as you say, it's a great story. And and you were the showrunner on that on that show. Yeah. So I mean, what does that involve on a day to day basis as compared to being just in the writers' room? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot. It's a pretty much an impossible job to do, I would say, because it's being in charge of the scripts and the writing, but then it's essentially being, I suppose, what in, in Britain we would call being a producer. So you're in charge of hiring everyone and kind of crewing up and interviewing all the sort of editors, composers, casting, costume, makeup, every single aspect of it. And you know, it's um, it, that's a lot of different areas to try and become an expert in very quickly. Um, so, all, yeah, all I did was, you know, try and find people I trusted and and trusted their opinion. You know, if if mm. you, if you find a great costume designer, then uh, trust their opinions on what they think people should be wearing because it's probably someone who's been doing it for 20 years is going to have better ideas than someone who's just started thinking about it a few weeks ago so yeah I think you know it's a, it's a matter as so often in life sort of getting the right people around you and then um, yeah I really enjoyed it I was I was nervous but I, I really enjoyed the experience do, do, you take, you... do you take a step back? Sorry, sorry. No, no, sorry. <laughs> do, do, do you take a step back from the writing as mu- writing as much if you, if you're having to handle all these other things? No, because I suppose that comes first. So first, you do the writers' room and get all the scripts ready, and then um, you then you sort of move into production and and sort of are in charge of making it happen, and and that's you know a lot of responsibility and also we filmed during covid so that was sort of extra responsibility and lots of protocols and um yeah it was it was challenging but it was 
I think everyone had just been locked away on their own for so long that they were so delighted to be back at work, even if they were triple masked and, you know, standing 10 feet away from each other. I think they were just, we were all kind of just enjoying being around other human beings. And and it is interesting you say that you kind of locked down the scripts before you went into production proper, because I remember being surprised when I found it a while back. And it's probably maybe old-fashioned now, but it, it was terms of big US shows that had like twenty, like 24 when they had like 24 episodes and stuff. And they'd still be writing yeah. the end of the season as we were filming the start of it. And I always yeah. thought it must be so stressful to try and have that kind of ticking clock catching up to you. That's something so, evident in the series. Yeah, you can, <laughs> absolutely, you can tell. And so it's, but it's that, I mean, it makes much more sense to me to lock, yeah. to lock things down because you know where you're aiming for and you can set things up. Exactly. And, and particularly... For, for for Shrink Next Door, which is like a, a mini, a limited series with eight episodes and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, but though you're right, yeah, I mean, I think anything like Succession is 10 episodes. I think you can kind of just about keep those in your head. But those sort of um, studio audience sitcoms that were that do kind of 22 episodes a series, which is much more like a sort of factory kind of production line is, yeah, I think that's another reason people over there get paid a lot more is that you do basically <laughs> just burn out every couple of years and have to lie down for six months. And obviously you've, you've recently um, written your book, um, My Mess is a Bit of a Life. Um, what made you want to turn to um, writing that at this, at this stage? I mean, I didn't. It's it's all slightly horrifying to me that it's happened. I, I remember someone suggesting that I write it and I laughed scornfully and said, the one thing we can be very sure of in this life is that I will never, ever write a memoir. <laughs> like, hmm, uh-oh. <laughs> I have done exactly that. I don't know. It was a terrible lapse in judgment or a moment <laughs> of lockdown madness. But, yeah, suddenly having um, happily put words in other people's mouths and... Uh, enjoyed the anonymity of it all I've now written something very personal and direct and um, yeah it's horrifying I mean it's it's definitely one of the few books I've read that's made me laugh out loud as I'm reading it because I think it's much harder to do that in a book than it is when yeah. you're watching something on TV and so I was, I was I was reading it this morning in in a coffee shop um, and I was I was just laughing it was it's just it's very 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 funny and and how did you find the writing process of the book compared to writing script, you know, was it, was it, I mean, it sounds like it must've been harder to try and get in your own headspace as opposed to other people's. Yeah, I think it definitely was. And um, it's, yeah, I think what made it kind of possible in the end, as I said earlier, I was sort of kind of phobic about writing prose. So in a way, I mean, it's a series of, well, they're saying vignettes, which is a posh word of saying very short short chapters. But I think I just sort of embraced my limitations as a writer and I've I've got a very short attention span. And I think after so many years of script writing, my brain just frames things in scenes, really. So in a way, it's like a sort of collection of scenes from my life. And so there's a lot of economy there and... um, not much description and just getting to the <laughs> points of, of various um, moments in my life. And um, 
yeah so I think that I that's how I kind of tackled it almost as like let's I, I can't write a this happened and then this and then this but I can sort of create a, a kind of a, a whole sort of range of scenes that hopefully kind of encapsulate what it was like and and when you were when you were doing that did you you know did did the writing of one scene sort of spark another scene that you hadn't previously thought oh, yeah. I'll write that but did it sort of spark off itself and yeah it did actually I think that's you know I'm really interested by how memory works and that once you kind of start remembering stuff other doors open to other memories and I also wanted to be true to that kind of um sort of fragmentary nature of memory and the sort Mm -hmm. of impressionistic nature of it and not kind of do that thing that people sometimes do of sort of imbuing my younger self with sort of any adult sensibility or hindsight just sort of represent it as I experienced it then which you know so often you just sort of witness something or observe something and you don't really get the bigger picture or the significance um and so yeah I tried to kind of be true to that and and um so hopefully that's more sort of interesting the reader has to kind of join the dots in a way mm-hmm. and was it was it nice the kind of more solitary process of writing as opposed to being in a writer's room? I mean, was that, is that something you quite enjoyed? Yeah, I like, I do like both. I, I like uh, being on my own writing, but I definitely also, you know, as you say, we're back in the writer's room for succession. And at first I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to get dressed and put shoes on. <laughs> I've done that for two years. Um, but it's definitely good, I think, to have some human interaction. Um, so I do like a combination of both, but it's, it's hard writing, um, a book and I don't know how you two felt, but you know, it is so much, it's more reassuring when you can kind of bounce off someone else and say, what do you think of this? And, um, it, yeah, it's, it feels scary just, um, writing a book on your own. It's, um, you're just left with your own self doubt and self loathing. Nobody else. <laughs> um, and we have to ask you, of course, about your trip to the White House um, with yeah. Julia Louise Dreyfus and uh, well, the actual Veep as well, Biden, uh, at the time. I mean, what, what was that like? I mean, that must, it sounded like it was a lot of fun from reading Yeah, that. I mean, it was just extraordinary. It was like a weird sort of cheese dream or something when you had <laughs> rich dinner too late. Um yeah, we we had to film this sort of sketch for the correspondence dinner when Obama was president, um, which involved taking our sort of fictional vice president, as she was then, to the the real vice president, which was Biden at the time. And we did a kind of Ferris Bueller's Day Off sort of scenario because everyone in Washington was at this correspondence dinner, but for security reasons, the vice president isn't allowed to go. So we kind of imagined that... Biden and Julia sort of got up to all these hijinks and it was just so bizarre to to walk around the White House having walked around the set of the White House on Veep and really worrying how many people came rushing up and said oh my god it's so true to life and you just sort of think oh no I thought it was a sort of (laughs) awful exaggeration (laughs) you know don't tell me it's lifelike um 
That was and the clue then, yeah. that Trump was about to happen, clearly. Oh, I know, my God, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, meeting Michelle Obama, who's, like, a huge hero of mine, was incredible. And, yeah, it was a pretty amazing experience, which I, funny enough, just there's been a few things in the press recently I have accidentally caused an international incident by talking about how much Biden's mum, who was Irish, hated oh, the yeah. English and the Queen. <laughs> yeah. And that's just come out recently. And um, so, yeah, uh, I, my, my dad was saying, that. well, now you've ruined the special relationship between England and America. And so now when they're negotiating with Putin, it won't work. So basically, World War Three is your fault. <laughs> it's all your fault. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, thanks a lot. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> and... and um, uh, looking forward, uh, you obviously working on the next season of Succession. Uh, I think you're also working on Tunnel Twenty Nine and mm-hmm. Galaxy Quest um, yeah. TV project. Uh, do you want to t- tell us what you can about any of those? <laughs> Can't. I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? Succession's really fun, and I think it's going to be a good season. Um, Tunnel Twenty Nine is another thing that was a fantastic podcast Mm -hmm. um a true story again about some engineering students who used their very rudimentary knowledge to build a tunnel under the berlin wall and in the 60s and rescue people so i'm really excited about that um galaxy quest is something i'm doing with simon pegg um which who i'm a huge fan of and yeah, and then I'm hoping to write something for Julia again um, because I loved working with her on Beep and it would be great. We're trying to do something together which has a lot of women in it and, um, yeah, I don't often get to write for lots of women, so that will be really nice. I'm looking forward to that. It would have been strange when you were working on Veep before it went to the US, working in the UK, but then did you, did you spend much time with the actors or was it quite standoffish? Yeah, no, we did. I think what sort of was good for the show, but not necessarily good for us, was when it was filmed in Baltimore, always in the winter, um, We, everyone, the actors, the crew, the writers, absolutely everyone was staying in this one hotel in Baltimore. And it was too, if you went outside, your face fell off because <laughs> it was so cold. Um, so we were all stuck inside this hotel and... So we we're all homesick. And so we kind of got to know each other really well in a way that I think you don't usually on other shows. It was a bit like being in a sort of theatre rep. You know, we're just Mm. all kind of together. And so I think that really helped the show. So even when it moved to L.A., the fact that we'd all got to know each other so well, I think really made a difference to the show. And um, yeah, so um, um, yeah, would really like to work with Julia. She's so talented, and there's lots of women that we've both sort of worked with and thought, oh, we want to kind of get them all together. So we're trying to um, create a show that will accommodate a lot of women, which will be fun. Awesome. Excellent. Sounds great. <laughs> What was the last book that you read? Mm. I'm reading, I've got a terrible habit now. I think it's the pandemic where I keep starting lots of books at once. Do you do that? It's really... Yeah, yeah I can't, but I can't, if I, don't, if I don't have one at a time, I don't, it takes me ages and I can't 
remember what's going on in all yeah. this. But I'm reading um, a book called Hell of a Book, and it's a fantastic book. It's about a writer. It's all, um, yeah. And, yeah, it's really fantastic. I'm loving it. Um, and if only I could remember who wrote it. But who cares about writers? Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and what about the last film that you watched? Um, the last film I watched was the brilliant um Parallel Mothers by Pedro Almodovar, oh, um, which is really, really good. He's so good. I haven't, um, I've seen quite a few films that I wasn't crazy about. And just like within a few minutes of this, is you just have that lovely feeling of, oh, I'm in safe hands. Mm. This is going to be great. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's a, I really enjoyed that. That's a great film. Great. And um, last TV show that you watched or are watching? Last TV show. I am. I've been watching the Responder, which I'm really oh, yeah. enjoying. Um, and I'm crazy about this way up with Ashling B and Sharon Hall. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Really good, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and then my sort of guilty watch, which the Succession writers got me into, is couples therapy, which is. <laughs> It's good for a good research for succession, just people <laughs> being so awful to each other. It's just astonishing. Um, but yeah, I don't really, I'm sort of don't really approve of reality TV because it's taking work away from us. But um, <laughs> that is quite compelling, I must say. And uh, well, the very, very last thing we always do is a super quick fire, either or. So I always say there's no right answers apart from one. So we'll start off with, um, let's go for serious Will Ferrell or comedy Will Ferrell. Oh, I'd say serious now I've experienced it. <laughs> um, Selena Meyer or Logan Roy? Oh, Selena. I'm, t- I'm terrified of Logan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, TV or cinema? TV. Uh, fancy restaurant or takeaway? Mm, I think fancy restaurant because I miss going to fancy restaurants <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so much. Uh, and last one, real book or ebook? Oh, real. Ah, that was the only one that mattered, and unfortunately, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> Can't you see the bookshelves behind there? <laughs> yeah, no, I should have known. I should have known. I was outnumbered. I'm desperately um, trying to find people who agree with ebook. I don't really. I've kind of made this persona of someone who's an ebook person now, uh, so I have to I have to stick to it. So. Um, yeah, very few people are on my side so far, but that's fine. I mean, I think there's room in this world for both. That's all I. Uh, no, yeah. well, yeah. okay. So is that was that point. That's a point each. I think that's a draw. Yeah, yeah. I'll take yeah, that. Take that's it. fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks very much to Georgia for coming on to the podcast. We really enjoyed recording that episode and I hope she enjoyed uh, coming on as well. She mentioned that she'd been reading a book called Hell of a Book and she couldn't remember who the author was, but uh, looking up online, it appears to be by Jason Mott. So uh, she said it was great and funny and that's enough of an endorsement for me. Uh, So yeah, I would go and check that one out. And of course, you can grab George's own book, My Mess is a Bit of a Life, uh, either online or at your favourite local bookshop. Uh, I'll also put a link in the podcast description to the uh, little skit that she did for the White House Correspondents Dinner that we talked to her about there. Um, 
that's available on YouTube. So I'll put a link in the podcast description about that. Um, next week, we've got another great guest. We're speaking with uh, the brilliant James Oswald, who is uh, one of the UK's best-selling crime writers. He's the author of the Inspector McLean series, uh, which is a crime series with a supernatural twist, I think it's fair to say. Uh, and he's also written some fantasy novels as well as some comics. So uh, it's a really interesting interview with him as well. So I hope you're able to join us for that. Uh, before we go, as ever, if you enjoyed the podcast, we really appreciate you taking the time to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favourite podcast app is and uh, even leaving us a review that really helps us in terms of continuing to get great guests on the podcast. If you follow us on social media, you'll see that we've changed our social media handles. So this is normally where Tarek gets them wrong. So I'll try and get them, them right with the new one. So it's very easy now to follow us on social media, whether it's on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. We are at UK page one on all of those uh, and you can get in touch by tweeting us or, or messaging us on one of those platforms if you want, or you can send us a, uh, an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you telling us about what you thought about the episode or uh, with suggestions for future guests. That's always useful as well. So um, have a great week and we hope to see you next episode. <laughs>